Thank you, praise team. We are here to worship the Lord this morning. It's a good morning, even on a rainy day, to be gathered together to sing the Lord's praises and to study His Word together. I'm so glad each of you are here this morning. To continue our journey through the Gospel of John this morning, I want to ask you the question, when do you find joy? What are the circumstances, the situations in which you find joy? Is it when relationships are all harmonious? Is it when your favorite place at Disney World or riding roller coasters at Cedar Point? Is it when you're your favorite restaurant? Is it, where is it that you find the most joy? But with that said, when are there times when you lack joy? Or are there times you lack joy? When there's sickness, when you have a loved one who's suffering, when there's conflict and strife in relationships, when you're in the midst of trials, are there times you lack joy? And then with that said, let me follow up with this question. Do you believe you can have joy even on those awful days? Do you believe you can have joy in the midst of the sickness, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the conflict and all that? Is it still possible to have joy even on the tough days, even in the trials and the brokenness of life? With that in view, I want us to see one main thing from the Gospel of John this morning. It's simply this. The cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. The cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. Friends, we can have joy in the fun places. We can also have joy in the trials and the difficulties because of the cross and because of what the cross opens up for us. The cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. So turn to John chapter 16 or find on your Bible app John chapter 16 this morning as we continue through Jesus talking to his disciples. You know the context well. This, in fact, is our eighth sermon in the same setting here. We've been in the same setting since John chapter 13. So instead of me reminding you of the context, I'm going to let you remind all of us of what the context is, of what we're looking at here. And so I'm going to give you a little quiz this morning. I want you to answer out loud this morning on this rainy morning, okay? So remind each other of the context. What day of the week is all of this taking place? Oh, that doesn't sound very common. What day of the week is it taking place? Thursday. Yeah, this is all taking place on Thursday evening. Who is Jesus with on this Thursday evening? His disciples, right. So it's Thursday evening. Jesus is with his disciples. Okay, where are they? The upper room. Yeah, so Thursday night, right before the crucifixion on the next day, Jesus is with his disciples, and they are in the upper room. And they found the upper room to celebrate something. What are they celebrating that evening? The Passover. Yeah, they're celebrating the Passover, the ceremony to remind them of their deliverance from the slavery in Egypt of God's people. And way back now, eight sermons ago, Jesus began this evening not with teaching them, but he began the evening in the upper room with the disciples by doing something to them, not just to be a nice gesture to them, but to rebuke them and correct them because they were fighting over who was the greatest. What did Jesus do to the disciples when he began the evening? He washed their feet. Yes, so Jesus began the evening on that Thursday night, the night before he was crucified, the very night he was betrayed, he washed his disciples' feet. And then over the last eight weeks of this same evening, we've seen Jesus teaching them how to love. We've seen Jesus teaching them how they should be seeking him for him, not for what they get from him. We've seen Jesus teaching what real belief looks like, what it means to be transformed by him, what it means to bear fruit. He's been teaching them their responsibility to share him with other people that they know. We've seen him warn them that he's leaving soon. They will be not orphaned, but he will not be physically present with them. He's warned them that the world will hate them. And like we saw last week, he's told them, but hey, you don't need to be afraid of all this because I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you to do what you cannot do. All this that we've been seeing over these eight weeks is all still in this one evening. And today is a continuation of that. So, this, so as we're looking this morning at it, realize this is not an isolated text. This is still part of the same conversation, the same flow of thought Jesus had over these last eight weeks of what we've been looking at since John chapter 
13. And as we read this morning on this, I want you to be looking for in the text how the cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. Remember, Jesus has warned them life is going to be tough. He didn't promise it was going to be easy. So how do we have joy even when life is tough? So we're going to start this morning in John chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 16. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? John chapter 16, starting in verse 16. We'll read through verse 24 this morning. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. John 16, 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me again. And a little while, and you will see me. Because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful that you've not left us wondering who you are and what it means to live for you in this world. Thank you for telling us very clearly what life is going to be like, but how by your strength and your grace and your power we can live for you. And God, I pray this day that you would open our eyes to the truth of this scripture. And God, I pray you would apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and do what only you can do. Lord, we're all at different places, and Lord, everyone has different burdens. But would you take your living word and let it be alive in my heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters this morning to transform us and be changing us and shaping us into who you want us to be, that we might know you more, love you more, and make you know more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Again, I want you to see this morning from John 16, the cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstance. So let's kind of take that apart and let's talk about the cross. Now, if you're reading the text in it just now and you're going, Grady, I don't see the cross in there. Well, that's good. That means you're paying attention, right? And you're listening. Where am I getting this idea from? Either you've already figured it out or... You're thinking about the question. That is really good. Well, the cross is not directly mentioned, but it is referenced in here and it is alluded to in here. So go back with me to verse 16 as we see where we see a reference to the cross here. John 16, 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. What is Jesus talking about to his disciples here? He says something is happening in a little while. Literally, it means a short interval of time. And something is about to happen in a short interval of time. This is again, what day of the week? Thursday. Thursday night, Jesus is betrayed. He's hours away from his betrayal at the most. The next day, he will be crucified. We are less than 24 hours from Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' body being put in a tomb. When Jesus tells his disciples in just a little while, in a short period of time, you're going to see me no longer, he's being very serious and very real here and very literal here. They are about to see him no longer because in less than 24 hours from what we celebrate as Good Friday, he's going to be hung on a cross, he's going to be killed, and his body's going to be put in and a tomb, and his disciples will not see him. So he's referencing the cross, referencing what's going to happen in less than 24 hours. But then look back at verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. 
Now, is Jesus confused here? Is he mumbling here? You're not going to see me. You're going to see me. You're not going to see me. You're going to see me. What is he talking about here? He's talking about, you will see me. He's, again, in a short period of time, they will see him. It's a short period of time till his crucifixion, but it's also a short period of time till Sunday morning, till the resurrection, when Jesus rises from the dead, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And they will see him not only on Easter Sunday, but for 40 days before he ascends back to heaven. So he's literally telling them, in a little while, you're not going to see me because I'm going to be killed on a cross, put in the grave. But in just a little while, within three days, you're going to see me again, and you'll see me for those next 40 days. Well, he tells them that. Do the disciples get it? No. Look at the disciples in verses 17 and 18. And I love that how they respond, how real it is here. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this thing that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. I love the realness of this passage here. The disciples don't understand what Jesus is saying. And in fact, in the Greek tense here, it's a continuous tense. It says they said and kept on saying, what does he mean? So can you picture the scene here? They're trying to wonder, what does he mean by a little while? I don't know. What do you think he means? I don't know what he means. What do you, do? What do you think? And back and forth they go, ongoing. They, add, they kept on saying, they kept on saying, they kept on saying, we don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. Now, before we get too harsh on them, friends, we're on the other side of history. We know what's about to happen because we know this is Thursday night and the cross is happening on Friday. They don't know this yet. They just know he said in a little while he's not going to be there. So let's not get too harsh with them there. We're on this side of history and can look back. <coughs> Excuse me. Hindsight is great to understand what is happening here. But Jesus loves them so much he doesn't leave them in their confusion. He explains to them. He initiates with them the answer they're looking for. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Friends, notice the disciples don't ask Jesus what he means. They only, we'll come back to that. They only talk to each other about it. But Jesus knows what they want to know. And so Jesus in his love initiates when they don't even ask him, he tells them what they want to know. Because he knows their thoughts. He knows their conversation. He loves them, so he shares with them what all this is about. And he warns them what is about to happen. And verse 20 is a very sobering warning for them. Truly, truly, this is important. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He tells them, you are going to be sorrowful. This is not a maybe or an if. You will have deep, deep sadness and deep, deep grief. And because the grief is going to be so real, it's going to have to be expressed. They are going to certainly weep and lament. They're going to feel such a sadness and a grief in their heart that it will be expressed certainly in their lives with weeping and lamenting. Why? Because they're about to see the one they love die. They're in less than 24 hours from seeing Jesus, the one they have given up everything to follow, the one who for three years they have walked alongside, the one who has taught them for three years, the one who has been with them for three years, the one who they have seen do miracles and heard his authoritative teaching. They've loved Jesus and they're about to watch him die, friends, and they're going to weep when they see it. And friends, lest we forget what the cross really entails, can I just remind us of the cross? We have this, this very sanitized symbol of it, but remember the cross is a rough piece of wood. And they take a prisoner and, they would strip, and they're going to strip Jesus naked. And they're going to beat his back to where his back and flesh is exposed and nerve endings, raw nerve endings are going to be there. And they're going to hang him on a cross and put nails in his wrist. And they're going to put nails in his feet. And he's going to hang on that. And to the, way, the way you die on a cross is you have to be able to breathe. You have to push up to breathe. And every time you push up, that nail in your feet sends the, the shooting pain up through the body. When you pull up, you're feeling it punch through your nerves, and you're feeling the pain in his wrist as he pushes up. And all that raw skin is rubbing against that wood 
to breathe, and eventually it gets to be so painful, and they're so weak, the, the prisoner can't push up to breathe, and he suffocates there. They're about to watch Jesus go through that. And so when he says, you're going to feel sorrow, they are going to feel a real sorrow, because they're going to see the one they love, and they've walked with for three years, enduring that torture. And they're going to lament, and they're going to weep about it. And while they're weeping over this, the world is going to rejoice. And look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world is going to love it. While they're in deep sorrow watching Jesus suffer, the world is going to be celebrating. Because the one who's challenged all their religiosity and challenged their self-righteousness and showed them their sin and pointed out their sinners, this world who's been offended by Jesus is rejoicing. The one who's offended them so is finally suffering and dying. And while the world's rejoicing, the, the disciples are going to have a very, very real sorrow here. But there's something really important in this verse that's easy for us to overlook and pass over. In verse 20, notice what Jesus does with their sorrow. You can look at this carefully. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be replaced by joy? No. Your sorrow will be distracted by joy? No. Your sorrow will do what? Will turn into joy. Friends, what he's saying here is very, very different than what we do as parents with our kids. I don't know if you parents, when your kid breaks a toy and they're crying, they're weeping because their prized possession of this life, that $10 toy from Walmart, is now broken. And they're so distressed over that. What do we do? We distract them. Hey, look, here's a bigger toy. Here's a better toy. Oh, no, that $10 Walmart toy is not so, that's so sad anymore. Here's something better. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not replacing sorrow. He's not distracting us from sorrow. He is turning sorrow into joy. The cross that began as something of great sorrow for them is now the very thing that's going to become a source of joy for them. At this point, when they see Jesus on the cross suffering and hanging there, that cross, that instrument of torture, is a means of sorrow for them. But that very same thing, not something else, becomes for them a source of great joy as well. Friends, have you ever considered how odd it is that we display, celebrate, and wear a cross? It makes about as much sense as if we were walking to somebody like, you know, that electric chair necklace is beautiful on you today. Man, I, that, 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 man, I love that electric chair pendant on your bracelet. That is gorgeous. And that's about as much sense as it makes. Or you go to someone's office, you know, wow, that replica of the gallows on your desk is just stunning. Where did you find that one? You know, that would be odd to us. Or you go to someone's house, oh, that painting over your sofa, man, I, that is the most beautiful picture I've ever seen of a warden with a lethal injection needle before. Man, that is stunning picture on your... I mean, but yet we hang the cross all over our house. We wear it. We put it everywhere. We take a thing that is the most painful form of execution ever invented and display it everywhere. Why? Because the object in its natural state causes sorrow. God turns that to where that very same object causes joy for us. Therefore, we celebrate it, we wear it, we see it, because the very thing that gives sorrow also gives joy. Not a replacement for it, the same thing. The sorrow is turned into joy. The sorrow of the cross becomes a joy in the cross. And this is so important. Jesus wants to make sure they understand it, we understand it, so he gives them an analogy. Look at verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. The best human analogy that there is to how the cross that gives sorrow is the cross that gives joy is the analogy of birth. Ladies who have kids, birth is not fun. I'm glad the ladies go through that and not me. I don't think I could have survived it. But birth is painful. A woman is sorrowful in the birth process. But that very pain 
that brings a life in the world is that very pain that gives joy because there's a new life that has come. The sorrow of pain becomes the joy of pain because life has come into the world. And so it is with the cross and so much more. The very thing that grieves the disciples and causes them to weep and lament is the very thing that they will now be rejoicing, shouting about, and telling everyone about very soon. And so it is for us, friends. The cross becomes something for us that fills us with joy too. How can the cross fill us with joy? Because it's the very thing that is necessary for you and I to have our sins forgiven. For you and I to be restored to a right relationship with God. It's the very thing necessary for you and I to be adopted as God's children. For you and I to be covered in Christ's righteousness. Therefore, we find joy in this thing that causes weeping and lamenting at the time. Again, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, I want to be really clear here on this because this is a verse that gets taken out of context. And you hear me say regularly, context is so important when we look at a text. This is not a promise that every sorrow you face in life will turn to joy. This is not what this is saying. We live in a fallen and broken world and we all feel the very real effects of sin. It is not till we get to heaven that every tear is wiped away. It's not till we see just face to face in heaven that every sickness goes away and all pain goes away. Friends, that day is coming and we long for that day. and We should be living with that day in view. But this is not a promise that before I see Jesus face to face that every sorrow is going to become a joy. This is a promise that in the cross... The sorrow of the cross becomes joy for Jesus' disciples and for all of his followers as well. And friends, it's a promise that as we look to the cross, we can find joy no matter what other brokenness in life we are around. The cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. But this joy that the cross enables us to have, there's something even more amazing about it. Look at verse 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. The joy that we have because of the cross is a joy that no one can steal from us. Friends, there is no one who can ruin your day. There is no one who can ruin your life. There's no trial that can ruin your situation. Why? Because in Christ, because of the cross, you can have joy regardless of how broken and messed up life is at any point. How can we be sure of that? How can we know this is really possible? And we'll get to this when we get to Easter Sunday. But think about it. When Jesus died on the cross... And he finally cries out, it is finished. And he gives away his spirit. What happens in the temple? In the temple you have this big curtain that separates the most holy place where God's presence is most fully known. It separated that from God's people. And when Jesus died, what happened to that curtain? What happened to it? It rips from top to bottom. No man ripped it. God ripped it. God made a way to where we now have direct access to him. Friends, God has made a way through Christ's death on the cross where we have direct access to him. And we always have his presence now, no matter where we go or where we are. We always have God's presence. No matter how tough life is, we have access to the Father. And Jesus reminds us of that. Look at verses 23 and 24. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. In that day, Jesus is now speaking future tense of his ascension, the day that they will no longer see him face to face. In that day, they won't have to ask him of anything directly because he won't be standing there physically present with them. But he's not left them alone. What does he tell them in that day when he's not standing physically with them? They can ask of the Father in Jesus' name. He gives to them and to us an invitation, an invitation to talk to the Father. In fact, this is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, which I think you got up on the screen there as well. But look at what the cross makes a way for us. It says that we might, he's saying of what he's done for us, he would reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, 
thereby killing the hostility. Friends, because of the cross, we're reconciled. That's the key word there. We are reconciled to God. We are made right with God. There is no separation. You and I now, because not because of us, because of what Christ did, we have unending access to the Father. We are restored to a perfect, right relationship with Him. And now because of that, go over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And that should be on the screen for you also. Because of the cross, because we're reconciled, this is what we can now do. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. You may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, treasure this for a moment here and think about this. Because of the cross, because of what Christ has done, the, the curtain is ripped in two, we're now covered in Christ's righteousness, we can march boldly into the throne room of God. We don't stand back shying away, we're not fearful, because when we approach God, we're covered in Christ's righteousness. We now have an invitation from the Father to come into His presence. No matter how good or rough life is, when we're in a mountaintop or a valley, wherever we are, we have an open invitation any moment of any day that we can walk into the throne room of God and find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Friends, that enables us to have joy. And what do we do as we approach God's throne? Again, go back now to John chapter 16 and go back to verse 24 of what we're invited to do. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You've heard me say this before in talking about prayer. Ask is continuous tense. It means ask and Keep on asking. Yeah, so this says, ask and keep on asking, and you will receive that your joy may be full. We have an invitation not just to ask one time. We can ask of God as many times as we want to, friends. We have an open-door invitation to go into the throne room of grace anytime and ask as much as we need of the Lord, and He hears. But it's not just He promises us an invitation to His presence. He promises to answer our prayers, too. Again, look at verse 24 again. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now let me just remind us here, this is not a promise that God has to order his universe, however I demand him to order his universe. This is a promise that as I go in Jesus' name, that means I go in, in, in asking things consistent with Jesus' character, consistent with Jesus' mission, consistent with Jesus' will that God promises to answer. So this promise is not a promise about wealth. This is a promise of things like, if I need help loving God, and I do, if I will ask and keep on asking, He'll answer. He promises to answer and give me the help I need to love him. If I need help loving others, and I do need help loving others, then if I ask and keep on asking, he will answer me and enable me to love others because he's commanded me to do that. If I need help walking in holiness, and I do, if I ask and keep on asking, he will answer and he'll give me the help and the grace I need to walk in holiness and overcome sin in my life. If I need help sharing boldly the, the hope and joy of Christ for those who do not know, if I ask and keep on asking, He will answer and He will give me the help I need and the Holy Spirit will come and work through us. And all these things that He's been talking about, what the normal Christian life is like, we can't do it on our own. We've seen that over and over. So He invites us to ask and keep on asking for the help we need to do all that He's called us to do, to love Him and to love others and to experience the fullness of His presence. We ask and keep on asking and He promises to answer and to provide all that we need. But don't miss this in terms of joy, friends. When life is hard and it will be hard, when life is full of trials and and tribulations and difficulties, and it's easy to despair and lose hope and lose joy, what's the invitation here? We ask, and we keep on asking for joy. And guess what? God has promised to give it to us, and we can find joy no matter how difficult life is. Friends, think about how amazing that invitation is. In light of that, why do we treat prayer like a duty? Why do we approach prayer like it's a burden or a difficulty? We just don't do it. We have way through the cross to have unlimited access to God, to walk confidently into the throne room of the Creator, covered in Christ's righteousness, and to boldly approach the one who can speak and the universe spins into existence. The one who has all that power says, come before me and tell me what you need 
and I will help. And we're kind of like, well, I guess I should try to pray more than I do. Or, you know, I'm just too busy to get up and talk to God this morning. Or We have all these excuses, and we have this invitation from the Creator who spoke the world into being to come before Him. And we act like it's some duty to talk to Him when He invites us to come, and He promises to answer. Friends, our struggle with prayer is nothing new. The disciples kind of had a hard time here also. So go back to verses 18 and 19. As I read this, remember, Jesus is standing before them. He's not wandered off. He's still in the middle of this conversation. Jesus is standing right there with them. Now, verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them. Friends, Jesus is standing right there before them, and they try to figure it out themselves. I mean, do you get the same? Jesus has been talking about all these things. In a little while, I am, you will not see me, but in a little while, you will. And so they say, hey, Jesus, we don't understand. They start going, what's he talking about? I don't know. Do you? I, I don't know. I don't get what he's saying. He's speaking in riddles. What's happening here? I don't know. What do you? And they spend time talking to each other. And when Jesus is like, hello, I'm right here. You can ask me about it. And instead, I've got a picture of their disciples. Their backs turned to Jesus. I'm like, what's he talking about? I don't get it. When Jesus is standing right there, knowing that they want to ask, waiting, and finally he's like, okay, guys, I know what you're going to say, so let me tell you directly. Friends, what a picture that is of us so much of the time. We have an invitation from God to march into his throne of grace, not because of us, because of what Christ has done for us, to get anything we need to live out this Christian life. Instead, we sit around going, I just don't think I can do it. I'm not sure. Can you help me? I don't know. And we're just like the disciples so oftentimes, missing on the invitation we have to come before him to find the help that we need. And just as Jesus in his mercy called to them, Jesus in his mercy calls to us, friends, because the cross enables us to have joy, regardless of our circumstances. Why? Because it opens up to you and me unlimited access to God. And when we approach God, God hears, he sees, and he answers as well. The cross enables us to have joy regardless of our circumstances. Friends, with that in view, it's very fitting for us to celebrate what Jesus instituted that Thursday night with the disciples. That's communion. That's the Lord's Supper. Like you said at the beginning when I asked you what day of the week was, and you told me Thursday. That Thursday evening, Jesus took the Passover meal. When they remembered when God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God, through signs and wonders and miracles, delivered them from their slavery. And they celebrated the Passover to remember how, by putting the blood over the doorpost, they had been rescued from slavery. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus took that same sign, and he gave new meaning to it on that Thursday night. He took it, and he said, The bread is my body broken for you. The cup is my blood that is poured out for you. He's reminding them of the cross. He's taking the imagery of everything at the Passover where they had their freedom from slavery. He's applying it to his own death and resurrection that's coming over the next three days to show them that he is one who's given them true freedom, not freedom just from slavery, but freedom from slavery to sin. I want you to hear how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three: For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night... When he was betrayed, took bread. Now stop there. The night he was betrayed, that's what we were just reading about today. We've been reading about for the last eight weeks. This is the night that we've been reading about as Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. On this very night we've been reading about for all these weeks, this is what Jesus is doing. Besides washing their feet, this is the other thing he does besides teaching them at night. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. In verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so on this Thursday night of the upper room conversation that we've been looking at, Jesus instituted what we're going to celebrate this morning. And that's the Lord's Supper, communion. 
But we remember the cross. Remember the sacrifice that he made to forgive our sins so we could be restored, reconciled to a right relationship with God. And that's what we're invited to participate in this morning. But there is a warning that Paul gives us as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we need to be mindful of. Verse 27. Whoso for, excuse me, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Friends, this is a warning. First of all, this is only for believers. Only for those who discern the body and blood of Christ. Only those who really believe that Jesus died in your place. That Jesus literally died on the cross, suffered on the cross. The very thing the disciples were weeping about. That you believe that actually happened. But on the third day, he actually rose from the dead. Defeating death, giving you a way to be restored to right relationship with God. If you believe that, if you're in Christ, if your life is being changed by God, this is for you. And so just as a warning, if you're not, if you're not sure you're really in Christ, stay in your seat when we observe this. There's no shame in doing so. No one's going to look at you funny for that. There's a sober warning. This is just for those who know they are children of God and belong to the Lord and have had their sins forgiven. But there's also a sobering warning for us as God's children as well. We're told to examine ourselves. We don't approach this half-heartedly. We don't approach this without seeking to make sure we are right with the Lord. And so this morning, in light of all we've been seeing in John's gospel about this, this conversation Jesus has on Thursday night, can I give you some things to think about to help us as we examine ourselves as we come to receive the elements. I just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to search you before you receive the elements this morning. And ask him questions like, is there evidence that, God, that you're changing me? Am I finding grace in my life from God to love others and grace to want Christ and grace to delight in him? Am I seeing God work in me to change me, to make him known to others? All the stuff we've been seeing week after week of what Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us. And so my encouragement to you and to myself as well so before we take the elements this morning, to take a few minutes to say, Holy Spirit, search me. Is there anything in my life that is displeasing to you, God? Is there anything that is where I'm not living out the normal Christian life? Friends, the reality is, Scripture is clear. We all have sin in our lives. I do and you do as well. But the beautiful promise of Scripture is if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the encouragement for you, brother and sister in Christ, if the Holy Spirit shows you sin in your life, be quick, confess it to him. And receive the forgiveness he offers. And then take and celebrate. Remember that his body was broken so that you could have your sins forgiven. His blood was poured out so that you might have your sins forgiven. And scripture is clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Christ endured the worst form of torture ever invented on a cruel cross. That you could not only be restored to a right relationship with him, but so you also could have joy. A joy that cannot be stolen or taken from you. A joy that can persist even in the darkest hours. In just a moment, our deacons are going to come and help you observe the, the Lord's Supper, the communion this morning. They're going to direct you by sections to come to the front. If you'll just follow their lead, our praise team will come first and receive the elements, and then you'll just return to your seat. If you need some time to pray, you don't have to take it while you sit down. I encourage you to stay seated and just to think about the stuff that Jesus has been teaching to his disciples and to us over these recent weeks, and ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. And once you're ready, then to take and to celebrate the forgiveness we have, not because of us, but because of what Christ has done for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful that in your infinitely great love for us, you made a way when we were sinners, when we were so far from you, you made a way for us to be restored to a right relationship with you. God, I pray for myself and these precious brothers and sisters that today we would treasure that. That as we see the bread and remember, Lord Jesus, your body was broken and suffered on that cruel Roman cross. As we see the juice and are reminded that your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. God, I pray as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would celebrate 
the forgiveness we have in you. Forgiveness not because of anything in us, not because we're good or we're worthy, but forgiveness because, Lord, you looked upon your enemies and you've made us your friends. So, Father, I pray this would be a time of sweet worship to you for those of us in Christ. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, as well, to search our hearts. Lord, we want this to be not just a time of celebration, but a time of growth as well. And so, Holy Spirit, if there are areas in our hearts to where we're not living for you, oh, Lord, would you show us that in your kindness to us today? Even this Thursday evening we've been looking out for these weeks, just to be reminded that, Lord Jesus, when you looked at your disciples arguing over who was the greatest, you loved them too much to leave them where they were. So you rebuked them kindly by washing their feet. I pray in your kindness to us, you might even rebuke us gently through your Holy Spirit to receive the elements just to realize that there's sin in our life we've not dealt with. God, I pray as your children, we'd be very quick to confess these sins to you and not to beat ourselves up over them because that doesn't do any good, but to realize that on the cross, the penalty was paid in full and we're free in Christ now. And I pray that the receiving of your sweet forgiveness would just be like a soothing balm over all of us this day as we remember your sacrifice and what you did for us that we might be forgiven be restored, and have joy as well. And God, we will give you all the praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen.